the twilight before the dawning, this room is just about to be ripped apart and put back together again. I apologize for the darkening of the one chandelier in the room that we need. And if it starts to twinkle, then it's going to be even dimmer. But welcome to the next in the continuing series of Friends of the Book Arts Press Lectures. The next lecture after this one is the 2nd of December, in which Daniel Traster speaks about the rare book Librarian's Day, in his case a long one. He is the curator of rare books at the Van Pelt Library at the uh, University of Pennsylvania and a 1976 graduate of this program. And then there'll be further lectures, as the friends know, on the 9th of December, when Robert Rosenthal from the University of Chicago speaks on the Career Art Library, and on the 16th of December, when Michael Winship from the Bibliography of American Literature gives the first Malkin Lecture. Those will all be at 6 p.m. on all of the Mondays in December. This Monday, however, it's our great pleasure to have Kenneth Nebensall, Nebensall from the uh, celebrated bookselling establishment of that firm in Chicago, uh, speaking on that very interesting subject himself, and it's a great pleasure to have him here. Thanks, Terry. I knew I could count on you to get me down off my high horse, and I am truly honored to be back here at Columbia and to be speaking to you this evening, to Terry's class, to Terry's group, and to those of you who are the Friends of Book Art Press. And I have a special welcome for my daughter, Patty, who has never heard her father at the rostrum before and who lives close enough to you and far enough to me that we don't see each other very often. And so she's with us tonight. And so is one of my distinguished colleagues I guess you know we don't have competitors in this business, only colleagues, Felix Owens, who's uh, gotten lost and ventured into the wrong part of Manhattan at the wrong time. The uh, administration of this university has succeeded for 38 years in keeping it a secret that I am sort of an alumnus manque, that is to crawl out from under the Latin-French euphemism, a former student innocent of Columbia degrees. In this case, one whose real education had to wait for a later moment so that conditions would be right for it to take hold. It is, like most things to do with the Rare Books program here, due to the dynamic presence of Dean Bellinger that I'm speaking to you. He knows that I'm one of his fans, one who approves of what he has done here and is doing here who believes he's a positive force in our small world of rare books. And he knows that when I refer to him sotto voce as the guru, it is meant most complimentarily. Dean Bellinger is a very knowledgeable bookman, to say the very least. I must admit, though, to some surprise when he asked me over the telephone after eliciting the title these remarks, what the dickens was the green stick? Surely most of you recall the story, probably an old Russian folk, folk tale told to Tolstoy by his brother Nicholas when, he, when they were both children, that in a ravine on their farm was buried a green stick with the secret of happiness and brotherly love engraved upon it. And no doubt Leo and Nicholas searched often for it, as have I. And in this world of books and bookmen, I have found it, misplaced it, found it again many times. My subject is one, as Terry said, which I have, about which I have more than a casual awareness and interest. It is about antiquarian bookselling, which has been my occupation since 1957. Let me begin with an observation that many of you might already have made. The one thing that most antiquarian booksellers have in common is their differences. As Robert Rosenthal, from 
whom you're going to hear shortly, of the University of Chicago, wrote in Gene Peters' book, Antiquarian bookselling thrives on the idiosyncratic and personal character of its participants. Let me cite a few examples. Yes, some were born into the business, but they actually are in the minority. A great New York bookseller of international class, Bernard Breslauer, followed his distinguished father, Martin of Berlin. Uh, there are a number of them. Three, three Californians come to mind. Barney Rosenthal, the American arm of a family that for four, and I believe entering five generations, has been among Europe's most prominent booksellers. Uh, still in California, Glenn and Muir Dawson, sons of Ernest Dawson, the pioneer bookseller of Southern California. And my good and lamented friend, the late Warren Howell whose father, John, was in the vanguard of San Francisco dealers. Unfortunately, Warren's passing sing signals the end of yet another of the all-too-few American bookselling dynasties. In England, the most obvious case is the clan mags, at least four generations of great booksellers, whose well over 1,000 catalogs form a substantial reference library on their own. In Paris, the Chaminal family, now into a third generation with the entry of young Rodolphe uh, to the Chaminal firm, founded by grandfather Maurice and carried on by his son Francois. The lifelong associations of Maurice Chaminal with both Chardinat and Galanti, uh, important, uh, internationally important Parisian booksellers, practically gave the Chaminal's claim on a fourth generation. But perhaps even more interesting are the odd doctors, lawyers, and Indian chiefs who ended up more by chance uh, than by heritage as booksellers. A.S.W. Rosenbach is certainly the book trade's all-time doctor. Dr. R. earned a Ph.D. at the University of Pennsylvania before being granted a number of honoraries later on. His place in the pantheon of great booksellers is unchallenged. During his prime, he was without doubt the most important rare book dealer in the world. The fine biography, the fine biography of the doctor by Edwin Wolfe is about the best of its genre, in my opinion, and is required reading for anyone interested in the rare book trade. Just as most of the autobiographies in this field can be overlooked with little loss. Lawyers uh, in the trade were represented most uh, prominently to me by my late friend Wright House of USiana fame. It is axiomatic that one cannot expect to deal in Americana without a copy of the compact, concise, indispensable companion that Wright House compiled. But Howes, although when I first knew him, had been a bookseller for over 50 years, was not always one. Early on, he told me that he was a lawyer admitted to the bar in his native Arkansas, but who had never practiced. He also told me on one occasion, after the sun had been over the yardarm for quite some time, that he is certain that he would have been the governor of the state of Arkansas had he just stand there, stayed there and minded his law partnership. Wright had gotten a job somehow out of law, law school selling books and never after wanted to leave the book trade. I first frightened him in 1957 when I was trying to figure out how I was going to get into this business. Having been about his smallest but perhaps most enthusiastic customer during that period, I had greatly enjoyed his company during visits to his shop and learned a lot from him so that when the decision was made, chiefly by my wife, as some present here know, that I would become a rare book dealer, I naturally went straight to Wright House. Marianne, you're laughing, and properly so. <laughs> he thought the idea was great, and perhaps, as perceptive as he was, he had anticipated it. However, when I asked him if I could go to work for him, or apprentice with him, or somehow arrange to succeed to his business someday, 
he was very quick to say, and he was in his early 70s at this time, look here, Ken, it's taken me 50 years to learn how to take life as easily as I can now take it. And if you think I want a young eager, eager beaver like you charging in here and working me to death, you are greatly mistaken. He meant it, and that's why my business is not called Wright Housing Company or Howes and Nebensall or anything of that kind. But when I did start, Howes was extremely generous with advice and cooperation. There was one bit of advice he rendered emphatically that I have never been able to follow, though at times I certainly wish I had. Always buy small books, Ken, he said. There are plenty of small books in this world that are first-rate in every way. Don't kill yourself with hefty tomes. <laughs> 28 years and two hernia operations later, I think I should have respected my elder and taken his advice. Each time I show a client some of our great-sized atlases, I think of right, particularly after a bout with a 12-volume plow. About 10 years after I started, Howes and his wife moved to a retirement home in Georgia, and they both lived until about 95 years of age. So the great scholarly dealer Wright Howes undoubtedly knew what he was doing when he rejected my overtures. My Indian chief was another case in every respect, another case altogether. I'll introduce him here to help make several points. He represents a type of individual who always has been important to the flow of antiquarian books, the book scout. Also, as you shall see, he was such an individualist as to be virtually unique. And even there he fits into a category that seems to have been forever present in the book trade, and perhaps a contributing factor to its vitality, and that is unique characters. Hawkinson was his name. He was a Sioux Indian, originally from North Dakota, who lived in Chesterton, Indiana. It's not very far from Chicago, in the Indiana Dunes area. I never knew his first name, if he had one. He was honorary chief of a tribe of Ogala Sioux, with whom he spent every summer. Winters, he spent selling the books, diaries, letters, maps, pamphlets, broadsides, and photographs together with various ethnographic trophies picked up during the summer in South Dakota. The latter explains the two peace pipes with elaborately decorated pipe bags of beadwork and porcupine quills that were seen for many years in my office. There were only a couple of problems in dealing with Hawk. One was that I had to have plenty of cash around when I got the telephone smoke signal that he was coming. He didn't care for banks, and I presume he didn't care for tax collectors either. The other problem was that during the several years I dealt with him before he passed away, he flatly refused to visit my office. He would never enter an elevator, and 28 stories was a little too much of a climb. So I would rendezvous with him in the entrance lobby of our building and would there view his offerings. After a few visits, we were able to move the meetings into more congenial surroundings in the coffee shop and the lobby. He never changed uniform, always appearing in a great aged sheepskin coat and even older black Stetson with a long eagle feather in the band. I bought a good number of rare emigrants' guides, overland narratives, and other frontier Americana from this wonderful rustic character, who, by the way, had an incredible recollection of the prices realized at the holiday sale in 1954, the Clendenin-Ryan sale in 1958, the Plath sale of 1959, etc., etc. You all know that this business consists basically of locating, buying, preparing for sale, and selling. I will allude to some of these activities by anecdotes of personal experience. In acquisitions, I've mentioned my Indian friend to represent that fragile and endangered species, Book Scouts, who are most important to the bookseller and should be encouraged and nurtured by all means. Except for buying a collection on block directly from the owner, Scouts are among the most primary of sources. 
It is also a fact that for just about every firm that survives in this business long enough to make itself known, there will have been a major direct purchase of a good-sized collection that provided the thrust to get the firm off the ground and into orbit, so to speak. I could cite many examples, but sticking to personal experience, the Deering Collection provides the case study. Frank Cutter Deering of Saco, Maine, formed principally during the 1920s and 30s an important collection of rare Americana reflecting the history of contact between Europeans and American Indians. While the books ranged from the 16th through the 19th centuries, the most notable segments of his library were his extraordinary collection of the Jesuit relations of New France, now at Yale, and his celebrated group of narratives of Indian captivity from the 1680s to the early 1800s. In this genre, Deering's collection was second only to that of the Newbury Library in Chicago. During the late 1940s, even before my time, <laughs> Stanley Pargellis, former director of the Newbury, not accidentally, spent his summer holidays on the Maine coast, and each year he would visit Joseph Deering, son of the deceased collector and a contemporary of Pargellis. Joe Deering, however, had been, been long convinced that no one but he could sell his father's collection. He would not consider selling to a dealer, using a dealer as agent, or certainly selling through an auction house. Anything any of them could do, he could do better. He had offered the collection to Yale and to Texas, but any time he got any encouragement at all, he seemed to pull back, feeling that he might not have capitalized enough potential future inflation. Deering and Pargellis drank a lot of bourbon together at Saco, Maine during the 1950s, and Pargellis tried for years, but finally despaired of ever getting Deering to sell. In 1959, before we were in the business two years, but after the Newbury had bought a good number of books from us, Pargellis called me in and made me a proposition. <coughs> in return for introducing and sponsoring me to Joseph Deering, would I give the Newbury Library first refusal of the items in the Deering collection not in Newbury? Does Bellinger work for Columbia? I mean, okay, that was an interesting question. The answer was obvious, but the results were, to say the least, not instantaneous. The many details and long soap opera-like plot of negotiations for and acquiring the Deering collection need not and actually cannot be related here. But I think one fact suggests a great deal. It was eight and one-half years later that the purchase was consummated. Of the 2,100 rare books in the collection, we got 1,600 and the Newbery 500. Of course, the great advantage for us was that since Edward E. Ayer, whose collection formed the backbone of Newbery's holdings in colonial and revolutionary Americana, and Deering, bought the same kinds of materials, and Ayer collected a generation earlier than Deering, Newbery had most of the outstanding books, which meant that they came to us. There were a few so rare that they weren't at Newbury, and even a few unique imprints. Except for those, <coughs> the benefit to the library was to fill in its number of editions held of many Indian narratives and other frontier Americana. The first tangible result for us appeared in our Catalog 20, issued in November 1967 at the time of our firm's 10th anniversary. That catalog contained 200 items, half from our regular stock, uh, such as Blau, Mercator, and Hortelius Atlases, uh, Catlin's North American Indian Portfolio, first and second editions, Maximilian's Travels with the Atlas of Bodmer Prince, the Columbus Letter of 1493, and the Magnificent Rosselli Portal on Sea Chart of 1447. The other half of that catalog offered for the first time 100 books from the Deering Collection, many of which 
have not reappeared on the market since. And I will only read a few, but I must do that. Included were Brereton's discoveries of the north part of Virginia, 1602, Luke Fox's Northwest Fox, 1635, a number of Benjamin Franklin printed Indian treaties. As I mentioned earlier, the Henry C. Murphy, Ogden Gorlett, Deering set of the Jesuit relations, 42 volumes, 1637 to 73. Jocelyn's New England's Rarities, 1672, and the account of the voyages, 1674. All five of the King Philip's War tracts from 1675 to 7. Mort's Relation, great American classic of 1622 with the Mayflower Compact printed for the first time. Rosier's Voyage to Maine in 1605. Mary Rawlinson's Captivity of 1682, the first such narrative, the beginning book of that genre of literature. John Smith of Virginia and New England fame, five of his first editions. George Washington's Journal. John Williams, the redeemed captive returning design, 1707. And finally, Roger Williams, key into the language of America, 1643. While I apologize for, for throwing such a long list at you, these books are so rare and important in the field of early American history and so unlikely ever again to be listed together for sale that there's no other way to indicate the importance to our firm of having acquired the Deering Collection. No catalog of ours from that day to this has ever been without Deering books. And now we're even experiencing that phenomenon which represents another key area in acquisitions. We are selling Deering books that we have sold before because we've been able one way or another to repurchase them. As I mentioned earlier, while the purchase of collections en bloc is the most desirable form of acquisition, it is by far not the only source. Most American dealers in rare books find that the European marketplace continues to supply important materials. Here one generally uh, is more selective, buying a few books at a time from established dealers who are likely to have a good stock. Things that you have a specific need for uh, or which are right close to the bullseye area of the target you've set out for yourself. If one is fortunate in doing this, excellent relationships may develop. <coughs> Excuse me. Where a European dealer buying a collection in future might reserve for the American dealer's next visit that section of the library just acquired, which would be of interest to the American dealer. And also, of course, to, be, to, to uh, obtain a beginning inventory, most dealers have to visit the trade in order to select some stock with which to start his business. My first buying trip, for this very reason, was to Europe in 1957, and one particular experience stands out clearly in my mind. When I reached Amsterdam, I visited a fellow by the name of Max Israel, whose name was listed in the uh, International League of Antiquarian Booksellers directory, and I spent several hours on a Saturday afternoon looking through his stock. He had very few things. He was actually more scientifically oriented than, than I was. He had very uh, few things that interested me, but a large selection, and it took quite a good deal of time to work through it. At the end of all of this, he said to me, I know the kind of books that you're seeking, and I'm sorry that I didn't have more for you. But I want to introduce you to someone now. And with that, he led me over to another corner of the shop where, sitting in a chair, patiently waiting, was his brother, Nico Israel. Max said, now my brother Nico has just the kind of books you're after. And that this Nico Israel, who was later to become and is today my very dear friend, led me several blocks to his bookshop. It was a tiny but charming shop in a storefront location on one of Amsterdam's lovely canals. Nico not only had a marvelous stock, but he knew his books well. While my knowledge of continental books was, at this early stage, 
more limited if possible than my knowledge of English and American books at that stage, the subject of almost every title in that shop was of considerable interest to me. As we went through each book, Nico carefully explained its merit and any interesting aspects, as well as the price. This procedure took a very long time, as I was a very green rookie bookseller, and Nico was very patient. We had started at about 5.30 p.m., and at one o'clock in the morning, after both inching slowly closer to the electric fire, Nico finally said to me, now, my friend, I think it's time we have something to eat. We had passed through every book in his shop, mostly while sitting cross-legged on the floor. In those days, I could do that. After looking through the book, I would carefully place it either on my right or on my left in two different accumulations. As we finished going through all the books, <clears throat> Nico looked at me a little bit quizzically And he looked at this small pile on my left and said, shall I send you these? And I said, no, thank you. Please send me these. Motioning to the enormous pile on my right. And while I didn't know the books and didn't have much experience, I had an instinctive feeling about the quality of books I was seeing, the reliability of the seller, and the reasonableness of the price. I purchased 75% of Nico's stock on that occasion, and my only regret was that I left the other 25. And I must inject here, yes, credit was certainly a lot easier in those days. In fact, I had not been home more than one day after the end of that buying trip when I sent Nico a cable for two of the specific items that I had just felt were a bit too much money for me at the time, which provided Nico at least the opportunity and the satisfaction of cabling me back that they had been sold. Many, many books have gone from Nico to me in the last 28 years, and quite a few have gone his way from me as well, and it's been a very satisfactory relationship to say the least one can say about it. So dealers do buy from dealers, back and forth, even on occasion to a comical degree. Referring once again to our friend Dr. Rosenbach, he had offices, as most of you have heard, in both Philadelphia and in New York. One of his friendly rivals in New York was a well-known rare, rare book dealer by the name of Gabriel Wells. One day, Wells was in the Rosenbach Company shop in Manhattan and went on his way out he noticed a little book on the shelf which he had not seen before and about which he knew nothing. Well, his visit had so far been profitable. So since it was a nice copy of an interesting looking volume and was priced at $25, he said he'd have it. Well, the next morning, Dr. R arrived from Philadelphia and the transaction was mentioned to him. The particular book happened also to be unknown to the doctor who immediately became alarmed that Wells had found a real sleeper in Rosenbach's stock. After all, hadn't he even failed to haggle over the price? Minutes later, he had Wells on the phone, learned that the book had not yet been sold, and had bought it back for $50. After Rosenbach's messenger had left Wells's place with the book, Gabriel felt that sinking feeling which goes with having made a mistake. He slept not at all that night because obviously he had let a good thing get out of his hands. Why else would the great Dr. R have responded in that way? Meanwhile, with the book at hand, Rosenbach appraised it seriously and decided that his original price had been quite appropriate. So when the nervous, haggard Wells appeared the next morning, Dr. R condescended to let him buy the book again for $100. This incredible series of transactions proceeded with Rosenbach worrying about that foxy Wells and Gabriel fretting over the behavior of the great Dr. R until at $300, Rosenbach was told by Wells that the book had been sold to a private collector, whereupon Rosenbach thundered the immortal words, how can you let a book go in which we've been making such a profit? <laughs>
Further to buying collections en bloc and buying from each other, there are two other major sources. The first is the institutional field, and much attention has been appropriately focused lately on the question of library decessioning at all levels. The conference a few years ago at Brown University, the papers of which have been published, was informative regarding future possibilities in this area. And several articles about that conference have appeared. The AB had a write-up, as did the American Book Collector, theirs by Dan Traster. Uh, Sam Strait wrote an article in the Wilson Library Bulletin and read a paper at the ALA Rare Books Conference in Philadelphia. We will no, no doubt see a convergence of the library's economic stress with the book trade's need for more materials, which should work to the benefit of both. And the other major source is the auction rooms, because auctions, because auctions appear here lastly amongst sources, that is not because they're the least important. They appear that way because I shall dwell on them least, as auction house people can best explain the inside workings of their organizations, and I'm sure that Terry has had and will have people here. But let there be no misunderstanding about one thing. There is, and probably always will be, a certain us and them relationship between dealers and auctioneers. This exists regardless of how actively dealers buy at the auctions and how often they may choose to sell via auctions, as some dealers do. The rub comes from acquisitions. The auctioneers compete for the same books and the same collections that the dealers want to buy. We have felt the drama and excitement of a number of great sales during the years we've been in the business. The phenomenon of the streeter sale in seven semi-annual groups of sessions, 1966 to 69, was one of the major events of this century in the book world. If we hadn't already cut our teeth in this business, we certainly did then. There were 4,421 lots to, altogether. We worked each one. We bid on 80% of them. We were underbidder on woefully too many, and we bought 15% or some 660 lots. I was invited to read a paper about this sale at a combined meeting of the uh, rare book section of ALA and the BSA, uh, which was published in the papers of the BSA in 1970. And when getting ready for this talk, I reread that piece, and surprisingly, instead of being embarrassed by it 15 years after it appeared, I can recommend it to you. It's kind of an interesting uh, analysis called Reflections on Brinley and Streeter and it compares the sale of the greatest Americana collection of the 19th century, the Brindley Library, uh, with the greatest of this century. Our flashiest single moment in the auction room came in 1969. During a visit to New York while I was viewing books at Swan Galleries, someone said to me, are you going to buy the Audubon at Sotheby's next month? The kind of thing one fellow says to another in the viewing room. And as it happened, my, my copy of the Sotheby catalog had not arrived in Chicago before I left, and I was ignorant of the fact that the book was coming up at all. Being too proud to admit this, I sidestepped the question with another question and said, well, who is going to buy it? My informant immediately said, oh, Jack Bartfield will. J.N. Bartfield, who passed away a few years ago, was one of the most revered of American booksellers, and one of his great specialties was Audubon's Birds of America. And it was he who had purchased the last copy to have appeared at auction some 12 years earlier, when, if my memory serves me correctly, it sold for $30,000. I quickly obtained a catalog, and we started to research the Audubon. Sotheby thought so much of the book that they produced a special catalog containing just that one item, illustrated with four plates. In their haste to make the deadline, the brief description of just over 200 words had some ambiguous aspects, and no ownership history was given, although it turned out that Sotheby's had sold this copy 47 years earlier and had given provenance at that time. 
Furthermore, no information was given about the rarity or importance of the 13 plates in two states, which this example uh, contained. We were to learn that more was involved than the superb condition and fancy piece of furniture which functioned as a protective case to this set. I wish there were time, there was time here tonight for me to describe those 13 plates, uh, but as I think I mentioned later, I did write a piece on it uh, in, in Art at Auction, Sotheby's yearbook, and we get into the technical part of it. It's, a, it's, it's quite fascinating. And at the same time, we checked as far as we could as to uh, who else in this country or in England might be bidding on the book. The indications were that there weren't too many obvious competitors at that time. We began to get more excited about the book, and you might say, feel vibrations. And then we learned that the Audubon, the star piece in the Ayer Ornithological Library, given to the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago by Edward Ayer, its first president, had been vandalized to the extent that 242 of the 435 magnificent double elephant folio plates had disappeared several decades earlier. Purloined, I might say, by a gent of the cloth who had complete freedom of the institution to the extent of going up and down the stairway with a huge portfolio on his many uh, visits. Well, when we learned about that, it about did it, and we started thinking in terms of tactics. We got some encouragement from one of our clients, not so much uh, encouragement as to give us a commission bid, but uh, kind of a sharing of our enthusiasm. It was then the Monday before the Monday of the sale. The sale was to be 11 a.m. Logistics get to be a, 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 a significant thing at this point. Arriving Monday morning was far too big a gamble and wouldn't allow enough time for examining the book even if the plane did arrive on time. Then you'd feel kind of silly getting there at 20 after 11. A Saturday arrival with special arrangements to view was finessed for fairly obvious reasons. And a Thursday night flight was booked for a Friday morning arrival allowing ade adequate viewing time even if forcing a long nail-biting weekend before the sale. In the flesh, the book was more beautiful than anticipated. It was not located in the book room at Sotheby's, but in a corridor on an upper floor outside the head of the book department's office, where it was shown by appointment. Well, this has its good and bad uh, aspects. Certainly no secret to the people running the book department that I was there and wanted to buy the book. But on the other hand, it enabled me to quiz the porter on how many and who had come to view. Not many really, Gov, he said. Only one to speak of was your bloody ambassador. He was here with his entourage and turned every page, just as you have. Him and his lady looked as if they were ready to tell me to put a ribbon around it and send it to the embassy. Prior to his appointment as United States Ambassador to the Court of St. James by Richard Nixon, Walter Annenberg had sold his Philadelphia newspaper and had about 50-some-odd million dollars in surplus cash in his pockets. So there was absolutely no doubt that if he wished to have the Audubon, it was his. I really had never been quite so depressed. I asked myself, why? had I been such a fool as to fly to London in the first place. Well, after viewing, I went to see my good friend Ted Dring, the manager of Quaritch's, where I learned a number of things about the book. They had bought the set at Sotheby's in 1922 in the sale of the celebrated library of the Baroness Burdett Coutts. The original subscriber was thought to be Audubon's wife's aunt, Euphemia Gifford of Kent, after whom they had named their son, Victor Gifford Audubon. I learned that the 13 extra plates were ordered from Havel the engraver after the work was completed to correct a few in 
correct uh, uh, attributions of species that had been detected. They were accomplished by a most uh, complex and demanding technique, and only two complete sets with those extra plates had survived. This one and Audubon's own copy located in a foundation in Orange, Texas, and in a very sad state of uh, preservation. Finally, I found that the 1922 auction price had been 600 pounds, or let's say about $300, uh, $3,000 at that, at that time. And with that, I went to my hotel to wait 64 hours until the sale. Now, I want you to know, you must trust me, as our leader used to say, it was not I who started the anti-Vietnam War demonstration outside the embassy on Grosvenor Square <laughs> that Saturday, which undoubtedly caused Annenberg to spend the weekend in Scotland. But whomever it was has my reluctant gratitude. Annenberg was not at the sale, nor did he bid. The sale room was packed, though, and I obtained a an unobtrusive seat in the center, and I had a colleague from Paris sit behind me to help spot the bidders. And the bidding began at 20,000 pounds, and about everyone in the room bid until 50,000 pounds. They frequently do that at, uh, at the auctions in London. Uh, there are certain auction room uh, uh, regulars, and they like to, to throw in a few bids. And uh, after 50,000 pounds, uh, there seemed to be only one other bidder. So I advanced once, and it was answered. The increment was 5,000 pounds, or $12,000 that day. So after I had bid 80,000 pounds, it was certainly over my mark, I had a split second to decide whether to cut the bid on the next round, or to signal quickly a full advance and try to make it appear as if I were prepared to bid all day. Meanwhile, my friend had whispered to me that my opponent was in the chair immediately behind me. Yes, Jack Bartfield. He was in the chair. I was still searching uh, uh, for signs of activity around the room from the likes of uh, Lou House of LDF Feldman, who at that point in time was buying all books that weren't nailed to their bookcase. Uh, the man representing Hans Krauss, who was in the room. Bartfield bid 85,000 pounds. I bid 90,000 instantly, and I heard Jack let all the air out in a great sigh, which told me before the hammer fell that the book was mine. Sotheby's in those days, long before their recent reorganizations, really ruled the roost in the world of fine arts and antiquities. To help them let the world know it, they had the dashing former RAF brigadier, Stanley Clark, our man extraordinary. By 11.15, the sale was at 11. Over the wire services went the news that a world record had been set for a printed book. No one, to my knowledge, questioned whether it was a world record, or even if it was a printed book. <laughs> Several hundred newspapers and magazines around the world printed the story, most, most with a picture. And I'm not making that up because I got the bundles of clippings from Sotheby's clipping service forwarded to me by Brigadier Stanley Clark, part of his job. And the Guinness Book of World Records ran it as such as a world record for several years. And as I mentioned earlier, there's an article on the set in Art at Auction for 1969-70, which I'm embarrassed to say the flippant title Audubon's birds migrate to Chicago, <laughs> written by guess who? <laughs> I think that although there are basically five, <laughs> I think that although there are basically five media of sale, catalogs, quotes, selling trips, the bookshop, and book fairs. Catalogs are the real signature of one's business. It has always seemed to me that you can learn a very great deal about antiquarian booksellers from their catalogs. I won't belabor that point now, but we can discuss this important aspect 
afterwards if any of you uh, would care to. One thought for potential booksellers among you about building a new business in this field, and that's with regard to reference books. When you can identify a reference book that looks like you'll use it more than four times, buy it. Go into hock for it. You will observe everywhere you go, and there are many people in this room, I think, who will uh, back up what I say. The better the bookseller, the better the reference library he has built. Um, to get back to my uh, lamented friend Warren Howell again, I think the most, by far the most exciting sale of, uh, of the Howell business, as far as the inventory and so forth was concerned, uh, absolutely was the reference library. Uh, the, the dynamics of it in every respect and the prices realized back that up. Well, between the buy-in and the selling come a couple of critical functions that I can identify. I can't explore them here in detail, but I want to mention first the researching and describing of the books and the trying to seek a point of balance between inadequacy and verbosity between super pseudo-professionalism as far as brevity is concerned and advertising copyright or hucksterism trying to find the middle ground there and all this while accurately describing the physical object at hand and explaining its intellectual place in the cosmos that's what antiquarian bookseller cataloging attempts to do and the second is determining the price you expect to place on the item. The subject that I've always felt could best be described as an occult science, and which could easily be appropriate for a lecture of its own. But having raised the issue, I shall duck away from it while leaving you with one more quote from Bob Rosenthal's previously quoted and very good article. Although supply and demand determine the marketplace, it is really the, percep the perception of supply and demand that is important in the trade of antiquarian books because there are a vast number of variables at work. I have always felt that one of the greatest rewards uh, in the book business was the associations, the librarians, and collectors, as well as other booksellers who have become my friends over the years, have added greatly to my enjoyment of life. I remember my first summons to visit Thomas, Thomas Winthrop Streeter in 1960. I received a phone call just after our catalog two had come out. The caller identified himself modestly as Tom Streeter and asked for an item from the catalog. With great regret, and I mean great regret, because I would have dearly loved to have sold a book to Mr. Streeter, I had to tell him that it had already been sold. And I assure you, he did not like that a bit. He reminded me, politely, that the same thing had happened when my first catalog had come out six months before, and he politely but firmly told me that book collecting was a very serious pursuit with him. After all, he engaged two professional librarians, uh, as, and that wasn't his entire staff in the library. So with my next catalog, if I was not prepared to send him an advanced copy by airmail, I might as well drop his name on the mailing list. Obviously, he got galley proofs. And I got an invitation to be his house guest at Morristown, New Jersey, the first of several such visits which were, if possible, more pleasurable than profitable. Now, my wife has told me she types this material and therefore <laughs> has, a, has a critical function to perform. She has told me there are many too many anecdotes uh, in this story. And if she hadn't said that, I'd be telling you about Everett Graff, Louis Silver, George Beans, Dallas Pratt, Lessing Rosenwald, Robert Deckett, the whole Mellon Mafia at Upperville. 
and others who were just as wonderful to know as Streeter was. There's just time to mention two of the aberrations in this field. The first is that book thieves are contaminating the book world at an alarming rate. New dealers or librarians need to be sure to be informed about matters of security, to be sure to protect yourself against buying stolen books, and to cooperate with the authorities to capture and punish book thieves. You're going to get quite an interesting story from Bob Rosenthal, the title of whose paper is the Krirar Caper, and I think that's probably one of the most dramatic examples of what I refer to briefly here as has occurred in this century. And secondly, much more frequently, much less, excuse me, much less frequently than the problem of books with pickled provenances, uh, one encounters fakes or forgeries. Make certain that you collate carefully every rare book you buy and learn how to detect any sophistication associated with a book. These things can and should be learned by all conscientious bookmen and women. It's that second aspect is almost a small enough situation as to not bear mentioning the former one about thefts of books in libraries is so monumental today as to be quite scary. Well, I will finally tell you that books have been my life for the last 28 years. I've bought and sold them, of course, produced 110 catalogs of books, maps, and prints. In spite of a self-imposed prohibition of many years, I've even managed to collect a few favorites. I've even read a few, God forbid. Written three. Served as an umpire in the book trade through the ABAA board and through serving on the board of trustees of three large research libraries, shared fiduciary responsibility for several millions of books. And after all that, I can honestly say to those of you who are entering, who have entered, or are contemplating entering this fascinating field on either side of the counter, as librarian or as dealer, if you can get as much pleasure out of it as I've had, the least I can say is you will feel amply rewarded. Thanks very much.